In the back of my mind, Christian life was a treadmill. We just slowly turned the treadmill up. Crisis is not our enemy. In fact, nothing good happens without crisis. We see people living in a kind of way that we would like to follow, charting a kind of route. I guess I'd gone from worshipping the waves that God made to worshipping the God who made the waves, and surely that's got to be so much more inspiring. So, it's Friday afternoon at the Outpost, which should tell you a couple of things. It means we didn't totally get on top of recording early this week, and we've had some stuff going on that's had our attention. Yeah, we had one of our creative teams that we work with just wrap up filming in Oregon last week and got our first stills back and working on this follow-up project to the fall issue that I'm keeping pretty tightly under wraps, but we're on a really tight deadline for that, and because of that, everybody's brain is a little fried. But it's okay, because actually, we had our second snow of the year last night, and significantly, it is the fall. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Padre and I got back from a hunting trip of his first rifle and uh, had the good fortune to get to harvest a cow elk. And it was a really beautiful weekend. You've had a hunting trip as well this fall, along with, with Dad. A couple of hunting, couple of hunting trips. And there was just there's been so many stories shared around them that that are really rich. And uh, I just felt like this was something that. I can imagine having like, this conversation around the fire with a cigar or some fine liquid from Scotland and seawater. Seawater, yeah. It really crunches the thirst. But this is stories from hunting, what we've learned, what we love about it. Not trying to be teachy, but something I was struck by actually this time is how many first-generation hunters there are in my life. There's a a fellow who has a TV show and written several books that you guys like a lot and we'll probably end up quoting multiple times in this Stephen podcast. Stephen Ranella. Stephen Ranella. And there's an episode where he's talking about hunting being passed down from father to son, typically, and that's definitely how I view it. But when I was looking at the men in my world that hunt, Morgan, our dad, specifically those two guys. A lot of guys. John Dale. On the intercessor team. Yeah. I was recognizing that they're all first-generation hunters. And they all, at some point came to Colorado and wanted to learn to hunt. And that's actually a really familiar theme with people that live in Colorado in general. There's just a lot of people who think of themselves as natives because they've been here for a long time, but actually they came here at some point. And in that, there's just so much, I think, hope that I experienced and so much that I wanted to offer to the guys who feel like they didn't get to learn it from their fathers and therefore they kind of feel left out in the cold. But man, like, we have had such a journey personally and then through the eyes of dad that I just want to go with. Hunting for us started in a little southwestern town called Pitkin. Oh my gosh, we're going to Pitkin. Oh, we're going to Pitkin. Where we stayed in a double-wide trailer. Well, you and I had very different experiences in Pitkin. We went at different times. I stayed in a cabin. Yeah, you had a real bed to sleep in. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the morning, I'll be a new man. Unfortunately, Matt... Did get you lost down the wrong watershed when you were hunting. You want to go to that story? Yeah. Yeah. So you are, what, allowed to hunt in Colorado when you're like 12, 13? Is it, you can have a hunter safety license? Yeah. Something in there. Um, I'm sure I'm wrong and somebody listening is going to know and they can 
write me an email and we'll update this. But when we were about that age, we started going with our dad and we would go separately, like I mentioned. To paint you the picture of Pitkin, it's a mountain town that it kind of has like a rural poverty feel about it, like a main street where there's never anything open and mostly some cabins and double wides and like a slower speed limit. Like that's pretty much what the town is. And the hills and mountains nearby are pretty sheer. Like it's not like some territories are low alpine and kind of juniper. This is mid-alpine with just like valley after valley after valley and dark timber everywhere. So you kind of don't have the helpful open areas called parks where you can spot and stalk. Instead, they put on these things called drives over and over and over and over again. And that meant using us 12 and 13-year-olds to go walking through the woods and smack on some trees and hopefully some elk might run out and hold still long enough for the guy with the rifle to get a shot. Yeah, I kind of like this story because I feel like our hunting education began with the hunting of early man. Totally. It's a very primitive technique and it works actually in whitetail hunters will still do things like drives. It's not a bad way to hunt. It's just a bad only tool to have in your quiver. <laughs> right. Especially if you have to hike miles and miles day after day after day. It just gets boring as you're you know, trying to make animals go running in front of you. And we had, I was there for one successful drive where a buddy shot a cow and it was just surreal. But mostly nothing happened except a deer coming out into the field and one of the local guys recommending that we should have shot the deer. We kind of asked why and he goes, well, teach him a lesson. Don't be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was dead serious. Like, this should give you some flavor for what Pickin was like. He, oh, he actually wanted us to shoot the deer. Uh, that's, just, that's just straight up poaching, buddy. But they live in a town where, I don't know if it was our years when we were there, if it was just legend at this point, but there was a fellow in town who had shot the trophy bull in the area before the season started. So poaching, in case you're wondering if that's legalistic or not. It is poaching. Lowered the, the elk's body into, into a, a mine, well. Yeah. A well or a mine shaft. It's one of the two. <laughs> and then on opening day, reeled it back out and taken it into the process room like, hey, look what I got. And this thing was like a popsicle at that point. It had been frozen for days. And you're like, ethics, technique, strategy, not exactly where we are today, but as a colorful starting point. So the, the story you were referencing, this guy that we would hunt with sent us on kind of like a, a, a drive of our own that we were going to just hike and hunt from the top of this mountain, kind of down this ravine and meet him up at the highway. Well, what he Sometimes called still hunting. Yeah. Extremely ineffective. Totally, right? Because if the wind blows the wrong direction, you've just blown out everything that you're going to be hunting. And right. Now you're just on a long hike. He failed to mention that this particular ravine was much, much, much longer than he had anticipated and that it ended in a scree field. So he sent me and dad down one and then another friend down another ravine. They both did kind of did the same thing. And about halfway through when the sun is setting and we're still halfway to go and we don't really have headlamps and it's just getting worse and worse terrain, more vertical, big scree boulders. And it just became getting out without breaking a leg. Uh, the other guy ended up tripping and falling really really bad and, and totally busted up his rifle and we got to the the road and I mean dad at that point I think that was the toughest thing I've ever done like kind of the gnarlier situation underplaying it a bit now but 
I remember my big reward was that I got to have like a Dr. Pepper when I made it back to the cabin. It's a big deal. Also, dad was kind of skin mad alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that is, those are my memories of the early days of hunting. Yeah. I, it's just really fun. I want to contrast that against, because we do have a learning culture here. It's like a low barrier of entry. And we don't, you know, very few people in our hunting community come from like the Daniel Boone lineage of hunter-gatherers. So we've had to figure it out. And so Pitkin's The Origin, this year was actually my first year hunting elk alone. And dad and I went up to the border of Nunavut to hunt caribou, which we'd talked about since I turned 13 and was given a hunting bow. So, you know, 13-year dream there. And then got back and I wanted to hunt so bad. And I just needed almost to get back in the woods to ease my way back into... You guys came back feral, man. Yeah, there's a lot of things that a deep immersion make very clear. And one of them is just the harmful effects of an entirely artificial experience. Like, if my whole life is screens, if all of my concerns are getting money to buy clothes, and I'm not actually anchoring myself in the rhythms of creation, which were initiated at creation by the triune God, I'm in a bad place. Like, I need to touch trees and I need to be connected to the food that I'm eating and yeah I mean we've quoted this before this is just to kind of partner with that but we quote Aldo Leopold who was a, a naturalist who said there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm one is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery the other that heat comes from the furnace yeah I mean I've heard that so many times but it wasn't until we were above the Arctic tree line and they had to fly in wood. And if we ran low, it was just colder that some of the reality of that set in of like, oh, we we live through a rich engagement with a landscape. You know, the word ecology or an ecosystem comes from the Greek word for a household in oikos. Mm. And there's just a very rich sense when you're a hunter as stepping into a household as a member of that household with important relationships with the rest of the animals, with the watersheds. And this sounds like highfalutin until it's just as simple as, wow, I need to know the habits of these animals so that I can maybe choose to kill enough of them to feed my family without doing harm to the overall population. So I need to know when they're going to breed. I need to know how bad the winter was and how the age class is doing and know how to identify an older member of the species. There's a lot of knowledge, uh, very basic knowledge that goes into hunting and chasing game animals that's linked to our role in creation. Yeah, I think something I've been struck by over the years is that the hunting community is super invested in resource protection. Like you get a group of people caring about an animal population, they begin to care about their habitat, they begin to care about their overall health and well-being, and you get these conservationists with rifles, which I don't think people typically imagine. They think of Bambi, they think of like, oh my goodness, how could you go out there and shoot an animal? And I think for me over the years, there's just been this internal wrestling and developing. Susie and I have this posture of, we don't want to participate in the consumption of something if we're not willing to fully own what that means. And that's land, that's heat, that's energy, that's food. 
And for me, like Pitkin was kind of more about going and spending time in the woods with my dad than it was thinking about the ethics of hunting and the impact of an elk population and how to properly manage the fact that we've removed all their natural predators. And so now we kind of got to get in there. But one of the first things that I had to wrestle with as I began hunting myself was, am I okay with taking this life? Like it's a, it is a weighty thing. It, you do have to step and walk into it. And there's knowing something and then there's doing the thing and walking through it that is a very different kind of knowing. Oh, absolutely. When I... I didn't successfully harvest an animal for the first 10 years that I hunted. And since I chose to bow hunt, that's not abnormal. And I know a lot more now, and I wish I could have a lot of those hunts back. But it was a late-season rifle tag. I was We were out in the snow in January. And actually, I think it was just before Christmas. And we were lying on this ridge when these three cows came out. And basic shooting technique is you want the rifle in a neutral position and then you get yourself behind the rifle rather than the other way around. And, it, you know, so I was lying down. I had a good little mound of rocks to bounce the rifle on. And I drilled this uh, double lung shot, this cow. And then dad turned around to go get our packs. And there was the very serious moment of watching over on purpose this cow elk as she was dying. And it was super sober, very difficult and Jesus totally showed up and, you know, it wasn't a rebuke, but it was, you have chosen to be bound in a way to this animal to choose, to make a decision about its death. Now pray, bind fear. I even want you to bind pain, even though you've just drilled this thing with a bullet. And then I want you to bind the spirit of death from this animal's dying. And that one, I just kind of was like, all right, you tell me to pray these things, I'll pray it. And then later... I was reading the theologian Norman Wurzba, who has a really influential book, Food and Faith, and he talks about the difference between death and dying in kind of this dispensation after the fall, before the return of Christ. And he goes like, yep, in fact, actually, we ha there is the presence of death in the world, but he calls like true death to be cut off and isolated uh, from the world, from community, from and thus like the outer darkness into which foul spirits are banished, like to be, to be severed from the world is death. And it was just, it's the opposite act to choose to go, you know what, this animal is going to die at some point. And as responsibly as I can, I'm going to make a decision about the significance of that animal's death for my family. But in a way, we're going to, we're going to rule it. We're going to take it in. We're going to, you know, it's, this is a funny thing. The tensions are all there because I'm pulling the trigger, but I would actually rather have the animal die by me shooting it than it dying of starvation. Right, yeah. There's, there's part of me that's, I can hear someone listening going, do you actually think about all of these things when you go hunting? Like, surely, you're, I mean, you're thoughtful people, but I mean, really, this seems kind of like a lot. And I want to say yes. And also it was a journey. Like we didn't necessarily start there. But even in high school when I was hunting with dad and it was early stages, not necessarily being able to articulate all of this. I remember interacting with a fellow classmate who also hunted and he got so excited that he found out that I was a hunter and was just talking about the joys of getting out in the woods and drinking a bunch of beers with his dad and shooting something. And something in that moment in me was like, 
uh, I think that's wrong. Like that, that is not why I do it. This isn't just about shooting a large animal and having a bunch of beers and kind of getting a little tuned up. There are different kinds of hunters and we have found ourselves in the particular group that really cares about entering into the act. And to your point, Blaine, about the death, that's something I've also ended up talking a lot with people these days is it is a violent act to bring an animal's life to an end. That's true. However, what are the alternatives for that animal? The best case scenario is they get hit with a semi going 70. Like that's going to be the fastest death for them. Starvation, breaking their legs, another animal eating them. Like if you exposure, being a big one, disease, right? Like I'm sorry, the food you're eating and the animals that die in the world aren't just being euthanized in this happy little prepackaged sterile world. Like they're, they are dying in real life. And actually, an ethical shot, not one that's going to wound them, not one that's going to gut them, you're going to potentially lose this animal, which is also how some stories go. But those shots where you're able to take one that you know you can hit and you get through the vitals, that animal, you have just given it potentially the most merciful and swift death possible. That was a mind-blowing category for me. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, after Pitkin came my time hunting. And at that point, we had some property. We were hunting from it. So different part of Colorado. And I'm now like 17, holding a rifle in my hands. We're going with Morgan and Luke. And it was, there were a couple of years in there that were the classic armed hiking type experiences of just everything is learning. Everything is a steep learning curve. Are you winding the animals? Are you exposing yourself on the ridgeline to the animals? Are you uh, able to see them. Like it takes a while to acclimate your eyes to the woods to be able to see these animals. Lots of evenings spent on the edge of a glade, just waiting, hoping, and not seeing anything. I mean, I think between all of the seasons, all of the years, we went over a decade really without harvesting anything. And I've only harvested two animals. And the first one when I was 17, and it was up in this mountain and the trees. Luke and I are kind of in the woods a little bit where we've got a little bit of of shooting lanes and Morgan and dad had just started doing archery. And so they're doing this bow hunting technique where they're calling behind us to get the the elk to focus beyond us and potentially move through us. Well, we bust this herd because it's the time of year now where the bulls that have cows want to keep their cows. They don't want to engage other groups. So all of a sudden when you see these animals just taking off and we're kind of waiting and waiting and hoping and Next thing I know, there is this movement out of the corner of my eye to my left, and I slowly move my head over, and there's a bull standing, I kid you not, seven feet from me that has just like pushed a tree aside with his (laughs) antlers. And I'm like, I've got my rifle up facing about at his, we'll say three o'clock. So I've got to move the rifle over to get the shot, and in the moving of it, slowly spook him. And Dad and Morgan hear the noise. They call quickly. It stops him. He keeps walking back over. I end up taking this. I I am not, I'm being conservative here when I say I think it was maybe a 10 to 20 yard shot with a 30 out six that's been sighted for 100, 150 yards. And I mean, hard to miss the vitals at that point. But there was something to that, that moment that I'm really grateful the story went that way. It wasn't this brown speck on this far hillside. I literally had to stare this animal in the eyes 
and be kind of terrified of it because these are big and those antlers sure look pointy when they're close. Yes. And then pull the trigger very intentionally. And I remember in the, we go and we find it, we're excited. And when we found his body, I like whispered, there he is. Because there's just this moment where you see it, like it looks like a grizzly bear, just the the beauty, all of the complication. And I don't know many hunters that do this, but I don't know a ton of hunters. And it's become practice with us of walking up and blessing and praying, like the experience, God, the animal releasing them and just participating in a larger story and larger picture before you begin to harvest this animal. And that is a very real experience. And that's, that. I mean, those were honestly the words that came that year. And then this, this year where I was able to harvest again of, it was just primal. Yeah. That moment, especially is such an intense one of laying your hand on the animal's forehead, being confronted with its beauty, feeling indebted, feeling grateful, but also, you know, feeling like you've just done one of the great responsible acts, which is hunt successfully with an incredible amount of respect and then have this amazing animal that you're going to take home to your family. So this year I'm hunting. I get back from caribou hunting and need to be back in the woods, need simply to be chasing animals. As dad puts it, in the woods, you solve problems presented by nature. And in the world, you solve problems presented by human sin. And so there's just this huge relief to looking at a hill and going, okay, I do need to climb this large hill, but I actually need to not be winded the entire time as I climb so that if I have a shot opportunity, I can take it. I need to not sweat because that's going to put me in a dangerous position. I need to not skyline because that'll spook animals. And then I need to not interfere with any major movement corridors and pool human scent there. So you're looking with a hunter's eye, which is a very unique and form perspective at a landscape. And I, anyway, so I hike this hill in the dark and I'd just been reading, this will be my shout out for people who are like, where do I start? Elk101.com, world champion bugler, Corey Jacobson has a course. You have to pay money for it. It's called Elk Hunting University. Elk 101 is the website. And I had just been doing some of the stuff, and it's phenomenal. It's just very practical, everything from elk behavior to being to effective hunting techniques to calling techniques. So I was, you know, burning to try this. And it's, you know, shooting lights usually 30 minutes before the sunrise, and you're usually out a good bit before that. So it's dark and get to the top of this hill, move my way across to where there's a little notch between two lower hills like plateaus that the elk uses a travel corridor and I got down in there and got in some pine trees because and then I tossed out a locator bugle simply because I bugled a lot from the open and then elk have come out like 40 yards away and seen me because I was being dumb so I'm down in some trees in case this happens it's super funny though because we grabbed the game camera after this and these two elk bugle back to me right away these two bulls so I go charging down kind of with the mindset of I'm hunting by myself so I'm gonna shoot something or bust something like not going to let things walk away. And I only have a couple hours to hunt because I was going to spend the day with Emily and Ailish. And I raced to this field where the game camera was. So like one image on the game camera when we grabbed the card is, you know, Blaine Sasquatching it. And then the very next image, 15 minutes later, was this like satellite bull coming the other way. Just It just drives me insane. Oh, uh, so, right. And you never would have known. 
Never. If there hadn't been the game cam that you had called, heard a bugle, gone chasing after it, and if you had just stayed there, potentially you would have found another bull coming towards you. Yeah, he just, exactly. That's the kind of thing that drives you crazy unless you just learn to live with it. Of like, Oh yeah, you can't play the what-ifs game. Yeah, you have to hunt the animals that you know are there. And so I get over by these guys and I'm right between these two bugling bulls and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. They're challenging each other. But I'm like, oh man, the sun's going to come up. These bulls aren't looking for a fight. They're taking their cows up into the dark timber for the day. And the only thing, you know, you can get an elk to, you can turn him on by acting like a cow that really wants him. Or you can insult him by getting inside the area called like the bedroom where you're really in his personal space and cutting him off with a bugle. And I just choked. Like I had gotten so close and I know they're right up above me in these aspens and I've seen a cow kind of moving through them and he's throwing a bugle back to every cow call I blow at him. But what I should have done was when he bugled at me, just rip an insulting bugle at him. You know, some people think you need to sound like a little bull. This is not true. <laughs> this is the successful hunters I know don't try to sound like little weasels because they're not going to come in and challenge the bull anyway. You got to sound like a legitimate aggressor. And I just did it. And they and so I was just chasing the guy up and I just couldn't catch up with them. Chasing elk, not a good idea. You want to be above them and in front of them. I was beneath them and behind them. And I come to the last aspens and at 60 yards, this bu- this bull is standing at the fence line. His cows are disappearing into the fence over the fence into the woods in front of him and he's just bugling down at me and there's no ethical shot and I just have to watch him walk away (laughs) I had almost the same moment a couple weeks ago my morning started in kind of the clumsy tired darkness by accidentally knocking my rifle over and it fell and hit hard and on its scope which at that point I should have just left it and taken the other rifle but their scopes are pretty sturdy and you'd feel stupid leaving your rifle back at the cabin. And little did we know that we were going to be looking at a massive bull on a fence line with his cows moving quickly 30 minutes later. And I mean, I've got this guy from 80 yards down a rifle scope, safety off. And I'm looking, I'm going, I'm not going to pull the trigger because I don't know where this bullet's going to go. And had to watch him just disappear and go. There's a there's a moment where a hunter with a 60-yard bow shot might take it because hey, at least if they hit the thing, they can maybe follow the blood. But that's just not the story you're after. That's not the ethics that you're going to adhere yourself to. And Morgan has those words duct taped and written on his bow case. We are hunting stories. And that that helped me not pull the trigger that time looking at that bull. And I'm super grateful I did because later we ended up sighting in the rifle and it was pulling away. I was so close it wouldn't have mattered, but it, it just also, it just wouldn't have sat well with me if I'd pulled the trigger then. Yeah. I love that story for the other reason of, because at 80 yards, you know, you're probably within, you know, your confidence interval basically of a wayward shot is still going to be in the bread basket. Right. But, as you know, as you were just talking to me, you mentioned that the last time you had had an animal in your sights was 10 years ago, and it was a bull that you successfully shot. Right. And the fact that you didn't touch the trigger is so, it just flies in the face of people's associations who are not hunters when they think about hunters because they're like, oh, you run into the woods, the first viable thing you shoot, and it's actually like, 
And no, there's a lot of thoughtfulness. And there's the thought of the right moment and the right time to go ahead and pull the trigger and feeling like, you know, you hadn't earned it. Like right. one of my favorite moments is, you know, when we shoot females, like cows or does, we like always make sure that they don't have calves with them. And I've really loved moments where we've called in like yearling calves or like two-year-old calves. So small cows that are big enough that they're not a fawn, they're not a little calf anymore. But we still kind of look at them and like, and you know, we've had them come into 10 yards to our calling on the last night of hunting. But that just isn't, there have been times when that's just not what we're about. We're not going to, you know, shoot a young animal that doesn't fit within the parameters of what we believe a good hunt looks like. And just kind of, with blessing, let these naive animals walk right by. <laughs> Who have no idea. And I, I think that would blow people's minds, right? They're just assuming the first animal you see, you're going to take, you go, you're successful, you're just kind of shooting stuff. And I'm like, well, no, there's a very funny memory I have with ground squirrels, Luke and a six shooter, but it's actually not a turkey shoot. And there's a lot of thoughts that go into the animal you do and you don't harvest the experience this past year with Padre in the woods as we're skinning this animal, we're processing the meat. It was, he's just looking at this animal and he's got blood all over his hands. He's wiping them off on the the fat of the animal from where we've skinned it. And it's a gnarly moment for, for anybody that's still like in tune with their heart and their surroundings. And it was what I called very real. And he just looks over at me and goes, this is the best cure for email. He was just so tired of working in the mental and artificial spaces that to do things with his hands that were visceral and solvable and practical really did something for his soul and my soul that was, you can know something. This is actually from my conversation with Morgan yesterday talking about the difference of like, you can be a self-aware person and a fairly intuitive person. You can learn that the electric fence is on without needing to pee on it. And then there's the experience of knowing and going into something that happens when you pull the trigger on an animal and you go and you enter into the repercussions of that. And I'm so grateful that I get to put food on my table and in my freezer for my family. Like that's that's an amazing feeling that just, I, I, there's nothing else like it. And there are, there are some guys that come to mind that I would love to take with us to get to have them experience some of that because they're not probably going to experience the actual harvesting of an animal. They're going to experience being cold and getting up really early and working really, really hard uh, for several days and coming back empty-handed. And even that is going to be really, really good for them. Yeah, it's so important to realize that most of the things that I do are symbolic. Like, if all I do is symbolic work, you know, design is a great example, right? Literally make symbols for people to use. And in exchange, they give me symbolic money. You know, a paper bill doesn't have any intrinsic value. Like, you can't make any real thing out of it, but you can trade it for things that keep you warm and put a roof over your head and put food on the table. But doing acts that are not symbolic of, Harvesting an animal that is directly contributing, literally keeping your family alive. It is the food you are eating. It is such a reorienting experience to the world that 
you cannot overestimate the effects of how important it is. Like right now it's small game season. And so simply, and you know, the season is like three months long. And when we were with some friends recently in the mountains, got a small game license and I was walking around and Ailish was taking a nap in the carry on my chest. And I was walking around with a loaded 22 in case I saw a rabbit because <laughs> I really want some fried rabbit, but I didn't see any. And Emily was a little concerned about me, but I already had, I had like a plan for how I was going to insulate her ears and then shoot in a way that was going to work great. Probably very, I would have missed. thoughtful of you. You know, I had thought everything out, but it, it just changed the experience of, you know, having a walk alone with my thoughts versus taking a walk that is not only helping my baby sleep, but might be contributing uh, to what we're going to eat that night. Just a, and it was just an hour, but it was just a little rhythm to get a little reality into an otherwise largely conversational weekend. Yeah. I, I think if I wasn't in the really beneficial position that I am now to to get to receive from these men that have been the first generation learners of this particular aspect of their lives that is hunting, I would feel probably as intimidated as a lot of guys listening right now of like, nobody in my world does it. I want to do it. I mean, I know guys that have gone to army surplus stores and picked up old World War II rifles and gotten their hunter safety license. And they're like, now what? Well, it's probably not a 30 rack of PBR and a deer stand. There's something to finding somebody in your world that can initiate you. Like we, we did. My dad found somebody at Focus on the Family that was willing to give up some of their precious hunting time to teach him. And it taught him a very particular, very rough form that was still initiation into the world. I think of Uncle Argyle from Braveheart. Like often the, the thing that we want looks very different than we would prefer it to look. But it's still important for us to say yes anyway. So we love Stephen Rinella and we love some of the things he says. Like hunters on their first day in the woods are like young men in their 20s. They make bad decisions and they make them fast. I'd like to think that doesn't apply to all men, young men in their 20s. But uh, yeah, hey, definitely not not up. There's just, there's something to, I've like enjoyed, it's on Netflix. Like I've watched a few of them and he has a pretty holistic and similar ethics view on hunting and tell you how to cook it and prepare it. But I am not actually volunteering my time to a lot of guys in my world because it is limited and it is something that's precious and it can be a particularly difficult arena to find. But I don't think I would be as interested in it if I hadn't been on the journey that I've been on the last 10 years that started with eating animals that has affected my ethics of what I buy at the grocery store, let alone how I hunt. And truthfully, I'm about as noobish as it gets for hunting. You know, I've been a few times, had the fortune to harvest two animals, but my eyes are very open and I feel like I'm getting a hundred to one lessons. Like every time we go, whether it's just to sight in the rifle with Padre or to actually go and be in the woods for four days, like there, there's just so much to being present to it that I know every time it feels like these are these are memories I'm going to be looking back on. Like I am very present to those moments, whereas I think I'm just moving too fast the rest of my time to to notice or to remember or to give it the weight that it needs. And so that's that's definitely something that I've really come to value about 
about hunting and, and that's just a, sh- a piece of it. I think there'll be more stories and more thoughts and, and hopefully we'll get somebody interesting in to interview on the subject down the road. But hope that there was something in this for you guys that, that resonates and intrigues. And don't forget, it's still small game season until the end of January. So there you go. Lots to be had. Thanks for listening to the podcast today, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we hope that you might send this along to someone in your world. I'm not asking for a five-star rating or a review. Rather, that if something about this podcast struck you, that you might pass this off to somebody that you think would really enjoy it. Looking for more? Good news. There is a new issue of Anson's Magazine. If you're listening to this after October 10th, if it's before October 10th, you can just wait. And there's always the chance we might be late. Sometimes we send you guys over to social media to keep up with us, but so little really happens on social media now. That's kind of a moot point. And make sure you keep your eyes peeled for our films rolling out in the fall. See you guys next week.